insight into how Paul planned to do that. How do you unleash the power of God? You know, we live in a day when there's a real push to renovate and redefine and reshape the church. And much of that is good. We have some wonderful new methods in the church today. But you know, as I listen to so-called experts in church growth, I often get the impression that the key to growing a church is high-tech, modern marketing techniques. The key to growing a church is modern methods. I was speaking to a pastor in town this week, a pastor who I have to honestly tell you I'm not sure is even a Christian. And he told me that, he said, we're losing a lot of our young people, and so we're going to start a contemporary service. And I didn't have the nerve to tell him this, but I was thinking, you know, you need to change more than your music. You need to change your message. See, modern methods are great, but you can't count on them to accomplish the work of God. Modern methods are great, but if that's all you've got, that's all you've got. Modern methods are great, but they will not unleash the power of God. You say, well, what will? How do we unleash the power of God? Well, the keys are in this verse, these verses, and we're going to see five characteristics of Paul that stand out. Five things that we need to model and appropriate in our lives. And if we will, we will see the power of God unleashed. First characteristic, Paul was thankful, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. You know, it's so easy to criticize today. To criticize the church as a whole, to criticize individuals in it. It's easy to be critical. And there's nothing that strangles a church more than a critical spirit. It strangles our worship. It strangles our service. It strangles our creativity. It strangles our relationships. It's like a plague. And that's why it's so refreshing to see Paul turn his eyes toward Rome and he's not complaining, he's not criticizing, he's not tearing them down, he's thankful. And what's he thankful for? Has something gone well in Paul's life? Is he thankful that he had a good harvest? Is he thankful for his health? Is he thankful for his own prosperity? No. He tells us in verse 8, I thank my God for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Paul was thankful for the spiritual blessings in the hearts of others. You see, Paul could be thankful because he knew what really matters. And this was a church that was famous for something. And what was it famous for? Paul says, you're famous for your faith. Now, there are churches that are famous for their architecture, their windows, their domes, their treasures. There are churches today that are famous for their pipe organ, their choir, their cantatas. There are churches today that are famous for their preacher. There are churches today that are famous for their bingo. The church at Rome was famous for its faith. Paul says the whole world has heard about your faith. The whole world has heard that you're a faithful church. 
You know, from my own travels and discussions with people, I believe that there are few churches like this in every city. Sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the size of the city. But you'll always find that where God is at work, where there is a faithful church, has very little to do with denominational lines. Might be a Presbyterian church over here, a Baptist church over here, a Methodist church there, an independent church here, but there are still churches that are faithful today. Now, we've got a church with that reputation. We are known as a faithful church, and that's good. That's great. That's a wonderful privilege that we enjoy. But let me offer a warning. Possessing a collective faith today doesn't ensure that you'll have it tomorrow. You know, the church at Rome in the first century was a flourishing church. It was a church known for its faith. Today, it's known for other things, much less appealing. Faith can move from city to city, from building to building, from church to church, and a church famous for faith today can be a barren wilderness tomorrow. That strong light can become a flickering candle and then a smoldering wick and then a waxen image of darkness. And you only have to read through the history of the church to see how that's happened. The church at Rome in the first century was a church known for its faith. And as Paul looked at them, he was thankful because he was focused on what really matters. The first key to unleashing the power of God is thankfulness. Now let me ask you, how are you doing in this area? Are you influencing people by affirming them, or are you inhibiting people by criticizing them? Can you honestly say that you have an attitude of gratitude? You see, if we're going to unleash the power of God today, we need to be thankful for the spiritual blessings in the lives of other people. Second characteristic of Paul is that he was prayerful. Verses 9 and 10. Notice verse 9. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul says, not only am I thankful for you, but I'm praying for you. And just to validate that, he calls God as his witness. And by the way, God is really the only valid witness to your prayer life because Jesus said in Matthew 6, 6 that prayer is to be a closet activity done in secret. You ever talk to somebody and and then say to them, I'm praying for you? And you walk away and you think, Am I really praying for that person? Can I even remember having prayed for that person? Have you ever said to somebody, I call God as my witness that I'm praying for you? Paul could say that. And what kind of prayer life did he have for them? Well, notice two things. Number one, verse 9, he says, unceasingly, and verse 10, always. They're pretty strong words. Paul committed large amounts of time to praying for the church at Rome. He says, I pray for you all the time 
and I don't stop. Now, what's our standard excuse for not praying more? Too busy. And if we're too busy doing God's work, then we oftentimes assume that that's a legitimate excuse. I mean, after all, prayer is really for people who can't really jump in and get their own hands dirty. Prayer is for little old ladies who can't do anything else. Those are the prayer warriors, right? Well, I want you to notice what Paul says here. In verse 9, he says, God whom I serve in my spirit. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he doesn't serve in his body? No. He's saying this is not just external service, it's internal service. I serve God from the depth of my being. The New International Version puts it this way, I serve God with my whole heart. You see, Paul had wholehearted service and he had wholehearted prayer. For Paul, it wasn't an either-or, it was both in abundance. Robert Haldane said, prayer and labor ought to go together. To pray without laboring is to mock God. And to labor without praying is to rob God of His glory. Until these two are conjoined, the gospel will not be extensively successful. Well, Paul understood that because while he was serving God with his whole heart, he was also praying with his whole heart, unceasingly and always. And then the second thing we can say about his prayers for them is in verse 10, he says, by the will of God. You see, Paul was not using his prayers to legitimize his own activities. He wanted to be where God wanted him to be. In fact, I want you to notice what Paul's major prayer request was. Verse 10. Always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. His prayer request was that I may go to Rome. And then I want you to slide down to verse 13 where it says, And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far. You see, the thing that up until now was most on Paul's heart, the thing that he continually prayed for had been prevented. He continued to get a no. But that was okay with Paul because, you see, he was submissive to God's will, God's direction, and God's timing. He resolved himself that he didn't want to be there until God wanted him to be there. But meanwhile, he prayed unceasingly and always that God would take him to Rome and unceasingly and always for those people in Rome. Now let me ask you another personal question. How much do you pray? Are you an unceasingly always prayer? You see, I am convinced that we will not see Paul's power until we practice his pattern for prayer. Third, he was purposeful. And that's in verses 11 to 13. And in these verses, we're going to see that Paul, when he got the green light to go to Rome, had a purpose in mind. 
He knew what he wanted to accomplish when God finally opened that door. He had a plan. He had a goal. Now, what was it? Well, there's three things that he lists in these verses. The first one is in verse 11. He says, For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. First purpose in coming to Rome, I want you to be established. That word means to be built up, settled, firm. And how was Paul going to accomplish that? He says, by imparting some spiritual gift to you. Now, that phrase has been interpreted a variety of ways. It definitely doesn't mean that Paul is going to go to Rome and start distributing spiritual gifts because no man can do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So what he obviously means by this phrase is, when I come to Rome, I'm going to impart to you the, the use of my spiritual gift. I'm going to use my spiritual gift of apostle to proclaim the truth of God so that you are established and built up spiritually. And then the second purpose in, is in verse 12. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Now that's reciprocal. Paul says, I'm coming to give, but while I'm there giving, I'm also going to receive from you encouragement. Now, that verse tells me a couple things. Number one, it tells me that when God blesses others through me, I get blessed. You ever notice that? Remember when Jesus was by the well in Samaria in John chapter 4? He was tired. He was thirsty. He was hungry. The disciples left and went into town to buy some food. And Jesus is there, and he strikes up a conversation with the woman of Samaria. And in the context of that conversation, she received from him new life and went off into the city to proclaim her new testimony of the grace of God. Disciples come back from McDonald's or wherever. They, they spread out the food and they say, let's eat. And Jesus says, I'm not hungry. And they said, well, why not? And Jesus said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. You see, Jesus had been refreshed by giving to meet the need of this lady. And that's a principle for all of us. The channel of blessing always gets blessed as well. When I was a kid growing up in Nashville, we had a water faucet that stuck out right in the middle of our yard. Now, today they're on the house. This shows how old I am. They were right out in the middle, stuck up about six or eight inches out of the ground, this pipe with a faucet on it. It was a real pain when you played football. But it was a real blessing on a hot summer day. But the problem was it set out there. It was metal. In the hot sun, that metal would really get hot. So if you were thirsty, you didn't want to, be the, you didn't want to turn it on and drink right away. What you wanted to do was turn it on and then put your hand on the metal and wait until the metal got cool. And then you knew the water was cool and you got a drink. You see, that, that faucet got cool by bringing the cold water to meet my need. And whenever I turn on the flow of God's teaching, which is the gift he has given me, I get blessed as I teach others. 
And that's true of every spiritual gift. We are blessed as we use our gift to build up others. But there's a second thing I want you to see out of this verse, and that is that Paul knew that the Christians at Rome would encourage him. Now that says something about Paul. It says something about his humility. He was far more mature than these Christians. He was far more gifted than these Christians. But Paul says, when I come there to build you up, I also know that you're going to encourage me with your faith. That tells me that no man is an island. We all need fellowship. We all need encouragement. We all need to be built up. And then the third purpose we see that Paul had was in verse 13. He says, And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul wants to establish them, and Paul wants to encourage them, but he also wants to see unbelievers in Rome come to Christ. You see, Paul is not satisfied with what has happened there already. He wants to make his mark in Rome. He's eager for some spiritual fruit. He's eager to see some unbelievers come to faith in Christ. Now, that's pretty impressive. Paul's busy in his own activities in Corinth, but he's got a burden to see people saved in Rome. Let me ask you a question this morning. How eager are you to see spiritual fruit? How eager are you to see people come to Christ? You know, I wonder sometimes if our zeal even extends to the people next door. What are you praying for? Who's on your prayer list? And if God answers that prayer, what is your plan? You may be praying for something, God suddenly gives it to you and you say, I don't know, I don't have a clue what to do with this. See, Paul was praying to go to Rome. He already had his plan in hand of what he was going to do when God took him there. He wanted to establish them, he wanted to encourage them, and he wanted to bear fruit among them. Paul was purposeful. And then the fourth thing I want you to see about him is that he was responsible. Verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says... I am under obligation. That phrase literally means I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel. Now, most of us understand that we are debtors to Christ. We were spiritual slaves to sin and 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you have been bought with a price. You were bought with the blood of Christ and you owe Him your very life. But that's not the debt that Paul is really talking about here. You see, Paul understood that he was a double debtor. He was a debtor to God and he was a debtor to men. And so am I and so are you. And what is it that we owe men? We owe them the gospel. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, you don't have any right to hear the gospel twice until everyone in the world has heard it once. Do you realize 
as a Christian that you have a debt to the lost people around you to share the gospel? Have you been to Washington, D.C., to Arlington Cemetery? They have the tomb of the unknown soldier. You know what it says on the tomb of the unknown soldier? Known only to God. I would suggest to you that many Christians are unknown soldiers. We are known only to God. Well, that's not enough because we're debtors. And if we are going to see God's power unleashed, we have to understand our responsibility. Paul did. He saw himself as a debtor to men, and not just to certain men, not just to selective men. He saw himself as a debtor to every member of the human race. The Jews had a phrase that divided mankind into two groups. They were Jews and Greeks. The Greeks had a phrase that divided mankind into two groups, and that was Greeks and barbarians. Greeks were those who spoke Greek. Barbarians were those who spoke everything else. And then Paul extends that by adding the educational end of it. He says, to the wise and to the foolish. Paul says, I am a debtor to all men, regardless of their social level and regardless of their educational level. I am a debtor to share the gospel with them. So, verse 15, thus for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says, I want to fulfill my debt by coming to Rome. You know, what excites me is that Paul sees this as a debt, but he doesn't have the attitude toward debt that we do. You know, when I sit down to write my bills, I do it grudgingly. In fact, when I have to write a check to the city or something, I'm always angry they make me put a stamp on the envelope to send it in. But Paul says, I've got a debt, and I'm eager to pay it. I've got a debt to share the gospel with all mankind, and I am eager to get it done. Let me ask you another personal question. How about you? Do you recognize your obligation to the Lord and to lost men? And are you eager to fulfill it by sharing the gospel with others? Paul was responsible. And then fifth and finally, Paul was confident in verses 16 and 17. Paul says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now why does he say it that way? Why does Paul say, I am not ashamed? Well, I think the obvious answer is that some Christians are ashamed. And how can you tell when you're ashamed? Well, when you're ashamed, you're not comfortable. When you're ashamed, you're embarrassed. When you're ashamed, you're timid. Paul says, I am not ashamed. I am confident. I am bold about the gospel. Now, I want you to see why Paul says he's not ashamed about the gospel. He says, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. You ever thought about that? The gospel is the power of 
God. Have you been out to Seattle and seen Mount St. Helens? On May 18, 1980, that volcano erupted with an explosion estimated to be 500 times more powerful than the force of the atomic bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. It was an explosion so powerful that it ripped 1,200 feet off the top of that mountain. Now, we call that an act of God because nobody else has that kind of power. Nobody else can knock the top off a mountain. But Paul says, if you want to see the power of God, you don't have to go see natural disasters. If you want to see the power of God, just proclaim the gospel. You see, the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again, is the power of God. And what does it have the power to do? Paul says in verse 16, it's the power of God for salvation. See, it's not the power to destroy, it's the power to save. The gospel has the power to save a person from sin. Sin's penalty, sin's power, sin's presence. The great English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, if Niagara could suddenly be made to leap upward instead of forever dashing downward from its rocky height, it would not be such a miracle as to change the perverse will and raging passions of men. To remove the leopard's spots is proverbially a difficulty, yet that is but a surface work. To renew the very core of manhood and tear sin from its hold upon man's heart, this is not just the finger of God, but the bearing of his arm. Conversion is a work comparable to the making of a world. The labors of Hercules were but trifles compared with this. To slay lions and hydras and cleanse Augean stables, all this is child's play compared with renewing a right spirit in the fallen nature of man. If you want to unleash the power of God, just proclaim the gospel. And who is it available to? Paul says in verse 16, everyone who believes. That's the only condition. It's available to everyone and the condition is faith. That's why it's good news. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to deliver people from sin, and it's available to everyone who believes. And then he adds this phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now that's not a phrase that refers to importance. It's a phrase that reverts, refers to chronology. He's saying historically, God's promise first came to the Jew. In John chapter 1 and verse 11, it says, He came to his own, the Jews, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many, that's the Gentiles, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. But there's more. Look at verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now there are two kinds of righteousness. There's man's righteousness and there's God's righteousness. And they're not the same. You know, we often think of this in terms of an ascending scale, kind of ascending degrees on a thermometer. There's cold down here and hot up there, 
And we have the mentality oftentimes that what we need to do is ascend the scale of righteousness. Well, that's not accurate. See, in our mind, we think the convict comes to God and he says, I've done 20%. God, I need 80% from you. And we think in our mind that the morally upright person comes and says, God, I've done 80%, so fortunately, I only need to trouble you for 20%. See, that's not accurate. The Bible says in Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. Romans 4, 5 says, To him that worketh not, but believeth on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You know, we have the mentality. It's kind of like you pull in the gas station. You say, well, I don't really need any gas, but I might as well top off my tank. Some of, has, some of us have the idea. We come to God and we say, God, I just need you to top off my righteousness. That's not what it's all about. You see, I have to throw away my righteousness. Paul could say when it came to self-righteousness, I am blameless. But we have to say with Paul in Philippians 3.8, my righteousness is cow manure. You see, I have to throw away my righteousness and I have to come to God with a righteousness not my own, the righteousness of God. The convict has to curse his 20% of self-righteousness and the morally upright person has to curse his 80% of self-righteousness. And they have to abandon all hope of salvation through that and come to the cross of Christ where we receive 100% of God's righteousness. You see, the gospel is the power of God because it reveals the righteousness of God. And who receives this righteousness? Notice verse 17. It's from faith to faith. Now, what's that mean? Well, there's one of two ways to interpret this, and both are true. We can look at it historically. Historically, he's saying God's righteousness has always been put to man's account on the basis of faith. Whether you're Jew, Gentile, barbarian, wise, foolish, it's always been from faith to faith to faith to faith historically. Or you can look at this personally. And if that's the case, then what he's saying is, I don't start by faith and then end by works. God's work in my life is all by faith. It's from faith to faith, from start to finish. And then he quotes from the Old Testament in Habakkuk 2.4 to show that this has always been and always will be God's condition for righteousness when he says, but the righteous man shall live by faith. 1,400 years after this letter was written, Martin Luther was in the city of Rome, and he was climbing the steps of the Cathedral of St. John. Those steps were referred to as the Holy Stairs because they were said to have originally been the stairs of Pilate's house in Jerusalem. And they were also said to contain stains from the blood of the Lord Jesus. And so Martin Luther was there in Rome, and he was climbing those stairs on his knees. 
reciting prayers, and kissing each step as he came to it. And what he was trying to do was ascend that scale of righteousness. And meanwhile, he says that this verse from Romans chapter 1 was going through his mind. Martin Luther was saying, the righteous shall live by fear. And Paul was saying, the righteous shall live by faith. He stopped halfway up those steps, stood up, walked down, returned to Wittenberg and wrote in the margin of his Bible next to this verse, faith alone. You say, well, what is faith? John Patton went as a missionary to the New Hebrides. While he was there, he translated portions of the Bible into their language. Problem he ran into was that they didn't have a word for faith, trust, or believe. And so he was struggling to try to find a way to communicate to them this concept. One day he went on a hunting trip with one of the natives and they shot several large animals. They had to carry them back through oppressive heat out of the jungle. And they finally arrived home exhausted. They each dropped their burdens, came into the house, and plopped down on a chair. And that native turned to John Patton and he said, it feels so good to rest my whole weight on this chair. And John Patton had his word. When his translation came out, it read like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever rests his whole weight on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Rest your whole weight on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The righteous shall live by resting their whole weight. You see, that's all that God requires because Jesus has done all the work. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the power of God. How do we unleash it? By being like Paul. Thankful, prayerful, purposeful, responsible, and confident in proclaiming the good news to all men. As we close the service today, I'm going to ask the praise team to come back. And they're going to lead us in that chorus, Refresh My Heart, Lord. You know, some of us need to make this our prayer today so that we can say with Paul, I am not ashamed. But before we stand and sing together, I want to share with you a statement from an anonymous Christian disciple. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast, the decision has been made, I have stepped over the line. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. 
I now live by faith, lean on His presence, love with patience, live by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, or slow up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and spoken up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when Jesus comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner is clear. I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. Let's stand up and get counted in that fellowship this morning.